You made it. It's Friday. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. So it's Canada. It's the United States. It's the World Cup of Basketball. And that is something that if I told you last week was going to happen, you'd assume it was happening in the gold medal game. Nope. Canada losing to Serbia. Americans lose to the Germans. So they will meet Sunday morning in the bronze medal game. We will uh, talk to Vivek Jacob later on in the program about that. But uh, tonight, Blue Jays starting the final series of the season against a sub 500 opponent. Yankees currently sitting exactly 500, so maybe that changes with the six games remaining uh, against the Bronx Bombers. Royals in town for three games who uh, stink to high heavens. Blue Jays just played a couple of teams who are not very good in Colorado and Oakland, and they took both series, but they didn't sweep either of them. If they sweep this Royals series, that 15-game stretch of games against sub 500 opponents 10 and 5 and you know what that's that's more than acceptable uh 9 and 6 feels less so i guess it all depends on what the rangers do against the oakland a's because that's who uh they're hosting for three games before the series of the season starts up on monday four games between the blue jays and rangers we'll uh hopefully get some news in the mere moment oh you know what how about right now Bo reinstated from the 10-day injured list. Mason McCoy has been optioned to AAA Buffalo. Is waiting on that, and I guess uh, the Blue Jays were waiting for me to crack open the microphone to send that email. Uh, so Bo activated back in the lineup for the Blue Jays, I imagine, tonight, although I haven't seen a lineup. Madison Shipman, kind enough to uh, join us now, Blue Jays Central Analyst. Um, thanks for doing this, Madison. So Bo back. Yeah, I'm. Thanks for having me. I uh, you gave me a bit of news because I was sitting here waiting on the lineup to see if we were going to start to see some of those players work their way back in. Now we don't have that starting lineup yet, but it is good news that uh, Bobuchet is now off of the IL. So I'm glad that you called me so that I could find out a bit of news. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I'm I'm here to do. I'm here to uh, inform. Um, so yeah, that's that's massive, massive news and something that was brewing there, and there was report of him um, at Rogers Center on the off day yesterday, working his way back to, to full health. And the Blue Jays, I mean, again, they, they took four out of the six games against those teams that they, they should have taken at least four out of the six games. I mean, five out of the six or six out of the six would have felt a whole lot better. What, how, what is your feeling as far as the, the state of the Blue Jays right now who are back in a playoff spot, thanks in large part to, to the Rangers taking a massive step back over the last three weeks or so, but uh, not at full health and, and, and kind of hanging in there? Where, what is the state of the Blue Jays in your mind? I still think that there are a lot of positives to look at because when you look at this past stretch, of course, everybody's been eyeing this stretch for what feels like about two months now because they finally hit a stretch in the season where they're playing some teams that on paper they should go in there and pretty much win every single game right now. And ultimately you didn't end up winning every single game. You ended up winning the series, both against uh, the A's and the Rockies. You would have loved to be able to come out with sweeps in those, but with an offense and a lineup that doesn't have its typical starting players in it, I thought that the Blue Jays still performed fairly well. When you have other people stepping up, whether it's Ernie Clement, um, David Schneider has really been stepping up since he got brought up in that Boston series just a few weeks ago. But I think it really shows the, the, the depth, I would say, of this team a bit too, to have other people be able to step up and still come out with some wins. And when you do look at those losses, there were a, a lot of unearned runs. I think of that Rockies game yeah. with you say Kikuchi on the mound. A couple of errors that led to a lot of runs for the Rockies. Now, did they play their sharpest game outside of that? No. Were there still opportunities to win that ball game despite the errors? Yes. But 
that's the game of baseball. It's going to happen. Wins are not easy no matter who you're playing. And when you look at this Royals team in particular, when you look at them on paper, obviously the Blue Jays should win. But this is the Royals team that has a lot of fight in them. They ended up coming back. I believe they were down by six runs against the White Sox and ended up coming back and winning a game against them. So they're a team that's going out there to try to uh, uh, ruin some people's days, I guess I could say. Um, but you're you're hoping that the Blue Jays come out uh, just as much, if not more, fired up than the Royals are just because of where we are in the season. And I know everybody out there is standing there, scoreboard watching of what's going on outside of just the Blue Jays. Um, but for the Blue Jays in particular, they have to go out there and focus one pitch at a time, go out there, try to win this ball game. because at the end of the day, you can't control what the, those other teams are doing. No, you can't, and and it is the game of baseball, and even the worst team in baseball is going to win, you know, 50, 60 games uh, in a season. So you can't take anything for granted even at this point uh, of the season and, and the sample as large as it's been with some of those bad teams. So George Springer, in the month of September, things are starting to tick up, but in an overall sense, Madison, it's been a very disappointing offensive season for, for George Springer. And you know what? You you look at the OPSs year over year over year in his, his first three seasons as a member of the Toronto Blue Jays. And each and every season, it's gone down by almost 100 points in OPS as a guy that's about to be 34 years old. I mean, should we be on the lookout for the potential? I mean, not start of the decline, I guess, if, if I'm talking about last year um, being a diminished version of his 2021 self. But wh- what have you seen from, from George Springer? And should we be aware of a guy in his mid-30s maybe taking a step backwards offensively? You know, I, when I look at his season as a whole, and maybe because I've been in that spot where you're in a slump and you're just trying to figure out what you can do to help your team. Because at the end of the day, when you see the frustration from him, and I think all the way back to whether that was stretch was what was it, June to July, where you could tell he was just getting so frustrated after some of his at-bats, whether he was swinging at the right pitch and just not getting barrel on it or putting a bad swing uh, you know, on a good pitch, just not able to get something. I, I think the frustration was coming from him wanting to perform for his team because he very much knows that, hey, the, the Blue Jays were struggling with runners in scoring position. They need somebody to step up. And you could almost see some of that pressure, I think, weighing on his shoulders during that time. What I've seen from him from that stretch in July to now September and even through August is him looking so much more comfortable up in the box. And what I mean by that is his pitch selection is back right where it should be. You're seeing his walks trend in the right direction, which is another reason why that OPS continues to climb as the season goes on. But also the way that he's able to adjust to pitches as they're on its way to them. And when I look back to that stretch, it just felt like he was having the same swing no matter what speed the pitch was coming in at, no matter what pitch it was, no matter which direction it was moving. It looked like the same swing from George every single time. And now, whether it's fastballs blowing in, whether it's sliders going down and away, you're seeing him adjust even his extension and his bat path on those pitches, which tells me that he's in a good frame of mind in the box. He's seeing the ball really well. And at the end of the day, when we talk about the offense and needing to click, he's a huge part of this offense. I know we often look at Bo Bichette, of course, and Vladdy Guerrero Jr., uh, but it, to me, it also comes from George Springer and the spark that he can bring right there at the top of the lineup. All right, Madison, I, I, I want to get into the weeds uh, uh, with a, a, a hitter. Um, so I, I, need to, I need to talk about hitting the first pitch because I, I just I, I found myself going down this wormhole this rabbit hole today of looking at stats and and blue jay stats in particular on the first pitch and there's three blue jays hitters in vladimir guerrero jr who who is first 
Um, but George Springer and Bo Bichette, who are in the top 11 in regard in Major League Baseball in regards to putting the first pitch of a plate appearance into play. And you know what? Vladdy is OPSing over 1,000 when he puts the, the first pitch of a plate appearance into play. He only has three home runs, but he the results have been spectacular. Less so with George Springer. In fact, he's only OPSing around 830, and and you look at the, the overall results for, for players and teams that put the first pitch of a plate appearance into play, and, and the average OPS is well over 900. So that's like George Springer not quite doing it at the rate you would expect when you put the first pitch of an at-bat into play. For yourself, like what? what is the mentality with that first pitch? Because we've also seen guys who are super patient, like a, a Kevin Biggio comes to mind or a Brandon Belt who, you know, pitchers will have that get-me-over fastball um, that those guys quite often take, and it can be quite a weapon to, to every once in a while actually swing at that thing, especially if you're going to hit it out of the ballpark. What is the mentality of a hitter when it comes to the first pitch of a plate appearance, and when do you want to use that weapon, and can you overuse it? Yeah, I definitely think there's a fine line. You, you never as a hitter want to go up there and just swing first pitch no matter where it's going to be because at that point, I, I think you're making a swing decision too early Whether you, and you, you've got to try to be on time for every speed of pitch when you have that type of mentality. Now, you can go up there and be aggressive first pitch of the at-bat if you're looking for a particular spot or a particular speed or a particular pitch that a pitcher is going to throw out there. That's the type of aggressiveness that I like. That's when you start to see that OPS start to trend up because you're on time for a particular location or a particular pitch that you're looking for in that count. When you start to see those batting averages, those OPSs going the opposite direction, trending down, is when you're up there just free swing, swinging, just taking a hack at whatever the pitcher is throwing out there just because you want to go up there and be aggressive early in the count. Now, I was very much an aggressive hitter. I like to go up there and try to take away the pitcher's strength. And at the end of the day, the pitchers are trying to get ahead of the batters because when the pitchers can get ahead in the count, it allows them to use a lot more of their pitches outside of the zone, and that's when you start to get people out. So I like to flip the script a bit on the pitchers, and I wanted to go up there knowing, hey, they're going to try to throw me pretty much their best pitch, whether it's the first pitch of the at-bat or the second pitch of the at-bat. So I'm going to go up there, and I'm going to take that pitch away from them. So that's the type of aggressive mentality that I like to see. Now, like I said, there is that fine line. You don't want to just go up there hacking at everything that the pitch, pitcher throws you because that's how you get yourself out of the plate. So trying to, to straddle that is easier said than done. Of course, I can bat a 1,000 when I'm sitting here talking about it on the radio. Yeah. But when you're actually up to the plate in those high-pressure situations, especially as you get late into the, into the season, that's when some of those negative intrusive thoughts can kind of come into your mind, can creep into your mind. But I, I am always under the, like, I am all about the aggressive mindset, whether it's up at the plate, whether it's uh, on the pitcher's mound or even defensively, you have to have an aggressive mindset every single time that you step out into the field. But I also believe that there has to be a plan behind those aggressive mindsets it's it's just it's it's so tough for fans madison i would say especially with the blue jays team that is disappointed offensively when when you see you know a six seven pitch half inning where where uh guys are making a bunch of first and second pitch outs um that it it looks deflating uh it looks uh embarrassing It, it it's just frustrating for fans and then especially when you see a guy like a david schneider who has, hey, listen, he's also swung at the occasional first pitch, but by and large, he's seeing so many pitches throughout the course of his plate appearances 
He's taking so many walks. He's getting in so many deep counts. There, there's so many ancillary things that are positive things that come out of, of taking a pitcher deep in account, whether it's running up his pitch count, whether it's, you know, if there's runners on base allowing for a pass ball or or a wild pitch or a stolen base. Like, there's there's so many things that can happen the deeper you get into a, in a, into account. But I just, I mentioned that Vlad's OPSing over 1,000. How do you argue with, with those results? I would just say that, yeah, from an aesthetic standpoint, it, if if a team is struggling offensively and you have a bunch of guys swinging at first pitches, it it is a, it is a, a a tough look. And I I wonder if you know that changes the mentality. If 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 you know if the Blue Jays had been rattling off a bunch of runs, and you know what they actually were, they were scoring a bunch of runs in Colorado and even in Oakland uh, outside of the game that they lost, where it was like base, basically David Schneider on an island again offensively. But when when a team is struggling, like is there not? Like a team-wide approach. Hey, we're not scoring a bunch of runs. Maybe we should. Uh, maybe we should ease up on the aggressiveness. Does, is it like a game-by-game game thing, or can you have even a team mentality when it comes to aggressiveness? So I do think that you can have a team mentality, but I also I also feel like even from a coach or from a manager standpoint, you never want to take away the aggressiveness of a hitter in a certain location. Like so, I was. If you're going to go up there and maybe you're hunting fastballs, if you get it on the first pitch, great, be on time for it. But if you don't get it on the first pitch and he tries to throw a get-me-over curveball for strike one and you let it go by, that's totally fine too. But the the, the at-bats, and I think where uh, from a former player perspective, the at-bats that would be more frustrating when I'm watching or when people aren't on time for the pitches that they're going after. Say you're going after a curveball early in the count and you're way out in front on it, those are the types of swings where I'm looking at it going, well, you weren't looking for that pitch, you weren't on time for it, and yet we're still taking a swing at it. Or the other way around is that maybe some players might be late on fastballs early in the count, maybe signifies that they were looking for a breaking ball, a curveball, a slider, whatever it may be, but they ended up taking a hack at a fastball just because it was there over the heart of the plate. So I do agree with you. I do think that there are times where you want to try to run up that pitch count, maybe narrow in the zone that you're swinging at in hitters counts to be a little bit smaller. I always tried to be a bit more visual with my approach, with my at-bats. I always felt like there was a little box or a little square that I was looking at when it came out of the pitcher's hand. And if the ball came through that square, then I was taking a hack at it. But if it didn't come through that square in the times that I was being, uh, I would say a little bit more selective or disciplined at what I wanted to swing at, then I would go ahead and let it go. Even though it might've been called for a strike, that's okay because I felt confident enough hitting with two strikes that I could fight off whatever I needed to and still be able to get the job done. So the, the, times that I would say that I would, like I said, I get most frustrated when I'm watching is when you're seeing swings that aren't necessarily on time for the pitches that they're going after. That's it. When you get, when you're looking first pitch fastball and, you know, maybe you hit it hard, but you hit it on the ground or you hit it the other way, like those should be pitches that you're punishing if you're swinging at the first Mm -hmm. pitch in, in, in my opinion. And, you know, Dalton Varsha was major league leader in um, home runs on the first pitch a season ago with 10, uh, not nearly as successful this season on the first pitch. I, I mentioned David Schneider has been successful at everything. Like, it's it's unbelievable <laughs> what, what he's done in limited time at the major leagues, Madison, even after, you know, he, he went a week and a half without starting a game, gets back in the lineup, and then picks up right where, where he left off. Um, and I, the way I, th- I think about it, because it, it, I, hitting a major league baseball must be maybe the most difficult thing you can do in all of pro sports, but 
the way he he appears to simplify it, right? And and he's not shied away from this. Like he knows his weaknesses, he knows what he's looking for. Um, and if he gets to two strikes, then you just battle. But before then, you're looking for your pitch, and when you get it, you don't miss it. It ju- it just feels like if that approach was applied by more members of the Toronto Blue Jays, we'd we'd be talking about them trying to secure this division title instead of where they are. It obviously isn't that easy, but it he makes it look that easy. I, I know he, he really does. And I'm sitting here and there are times where I'm watching David Schneider and I'm like, man, if I could have only implemented that in my game, I probably would have hit a whole lot better. Right. It, it, it's, it's, it's crazy how the game of baseball is so much of a mentality standpoint and, and simplifying, I think is the perfect way to describe the way that David Schneider goes about his at bats. He might get beat in one at bat, but he doesn't try to over-adjust to what the pitcher is going out there throwing. He just comes up in his next at-bat. He's very calm. He knows exactly what he's looking for. Sometimes the pitcher is just going to throw a better pitch, and you're going to swing and miss, and that's okay. And he seems okay with that. You don't ever see him come up after a strikeout and try even harder to hit the ball out. It just it feels like a very uh, effortless swing with a lot of power from him. And because he's so calm in his at-bats, I think a lot of it stems from his confidence that he has with two strikes, too. He's not afraid to get to a two-strike count because he knows he still has a very good eye up at the plate. He's going to be very disciplined on pitches in the strike zone, but he can also adjust to a variety of different pitches. And that was one thing that stood out to me when he first got called up in that Boston series was he wasn't just pulling the ball to the left side, but he was spraying balls all over the field, adjusting to breaking balls, to fastballs. Those are the types of hitters that you love to have in your lineup, the ones that don't have a ton of holes in their swings and the ones that are going to adjust from at-bat to at-bat. So he, he's only, in his major league career, played in 20 games. <laughs> he, has, he has 82 plate appearances. Those have been pretty darn good plate appearances, though. Um, I, and he, there's not a ton of games remaining. Uh, we're in the middle of September here, so he will finish this season without a large sample in the major leagues, but this is an off season in which the Blue Jays are going to have to calibrate what he is for next season. And maybe you, you, you have some insurance like behind him and and maybe it's not a, Hey, it's your job. You got it. And there's no backup plan if you fail. But at this point, Madison, it's hard for me not to, to, to start penciling Davis Schneider's name into the opening day lineup in in 2024. I I know it's a small sample, but I, I, do you think this is sustainable? What he's brought to in just those, what, 82 plate appearances is the power in the bat. And that's something that the Blue Jays have really lacked all season long. Not that they don't have the potential for it and from top to bottom in their lineup, but there was a time before the season where we thought we were going to see several hitters with 30 or more home runs in this offense. We just haven't seen the long ball yet this year. And so when you bring in somebody like Davis Schneider and he shows the home run potential up to seven home runs already in those 82 plate appearances. That's something that you get really excited for. And and I think that that's something that would have been a difference maker earlier on in the season for the blue Jays to be able to have more of that home run pop, because to me, offensively, that's been there. There's been several differences, but that's been the biggest difference. When you look at last season to this season is the drop off in the number of home runs. And even if you were to just pencil in, 10 to 12 more team home runs. I think that adds up to probably four or five, six, six, maybe more wins on the season, which looking at how tight the race is makes a huge difference this time of the year. So to me, what that's the one thing that, I mean, he brings a lot of different things to the table, but his power and his plate discipline are something to me that stand out above the rest. 
Yeah, and the mustache. Um, yeah, he's and, he's and the mustache. I mean, you just yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no question. The mustache it is, speaks for itself. It does, and yeah, uh, I'm I'm sure there's going to be plenty of mustachioed fan uh, down at Rogers Center tonight. Blue Jays and Royals. Madison, thanks so much for this. Awesome. Thank you for having me. There's Madison Shipman on uh, the desk for tonight's Blue Jays game. Blue Jays Central analyst alongside Jamie Campbell. Three games against the Royals before the season really starts on Monday. Four games against the Texas Rangers who trail the Blue Jays by a half game. And I think it's a situation where the Blue Jays got to just kind of hold serve here for these next three games and try and sweep them away. I mean, the Rangers have been brutal recently. But they have the A's and they have them at home. I don't know if you can expect the Rangers to sweep, but both teams really need to sweep going into that four-game series. All right, so Bo Bichette is back. That's important because he's quite good. And at last check, like only David Schneider was good on this Blue Jays team. Now there's two players. It's Bo Bichette and you got a David Schneider. Hey, maybe Brandon Belt uh, will be back from his back stuff and his illness as well. We haven't seen a lineup when we uh, see it. We'll pass it your way. So... I told you, I was, or I told Madison, I mentioned, and if you were on Twitter, you know where my head was at. I was just, sometimes there's a, a thought that runs through your head and you, you find evidence and numbers that support it or counter it, and you just get flooded with information and you, you can't stop. And that was me today on MLB.com which is the only place I could find this first pitch uh, stat stuff. So the Blue Jays have had success swinging at the first pitch. Vladdy does it more than anybody. And he was on the top 10 list a season ago as far as aggressiveness on the first pitch. Bobichet, you know that. He's always going to be aggressive early in counts. Never a question with his... The, the Bobichet is consistent year over year over year. What you're going to get out of Bo Bichette. George Springer's been way more aggressive on the first pitch this season than he was a year ago. To me, the, the biggest mind-bender was how successful Dalton Varsho was on the first pitch a season ago. He had the same number of first-pitch home runs as Aaron Judge, who you might recall set the American League home run record a year ago. Dalton Varsho, 10 of his 27 home runs a season ago were on the first pitch. So... You, sh- you can't have a blanket statement that you should never swing at the first pitch or rarely swing at the first pitch. Like, by and large, if you put the first pitch of a plate appearance in play, you're going to be successful. The Pittsburgh Pirates are dead last in Major League Baseball as far as OPS on the first pitch. 832 OPS. The league average OPS, just everything combined, is 736. So almost 100 points higher in OPS when... The Pittsburgh Pirates uh, put that first pitch in place. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good thing generally. But that should also be informative as far as the bar. Like, how good do you need to be on the first pitch to keep doing it? I would say much better than the worst team in baseball, the Pittsburgh Pirates at 832. Uh, George Springer in and around that when he puts the first pitch in play. And also, like I mentioned, the OPS over 1,000 for Vlad. There's only three homers in there. Jake Berger has like 13 this season on the first pitch. That, that, that fellow should continue to swing at the first pitch because when he does, he does damage. 
And I think, again, this is an example. I mean, this matches the eye test that, that Vladdy's got this great exit velocity, that he's hitting balls hard, that occasionally they're on the ground, that too often they're not pulled in the air and hit for home runs. If you're swinging at the first pitch, you better be looking at extra bases. And the Blue Jays, top five in Major League Baseball in batting average on the first pitch, 18th highest in slugging. Would tell you all you need to know. That that's all well and good to get a single on the first pitch. You should be looking to do damage. And I'm sure the Blue Jays are. But they have not been successful all season long, really, with the slugging percentage, but especially on the first pitch. So we'll see tonight if that changes. Uh, not likely to with Bo Bichette back in the lineup. We'll see if Brandon Belt's back in there. All right, when we come back, it's another early morning. If you want to see Canada try to achieve its first ever medal at the FIBA World Cup of Basketball, if you want to see Canada versus the United States for basketball bragging rights, bronze medal game at 4.30 Sunday morning. We'll talk to Vivek Jacob, Sportsnet basketball writer next. The Fan Drive Time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Covering the Blue Jays from an analytical perspective. Jays Talk Plus with Blake Murphy. Be sure to subscribe and download Jays Talk on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Canada fought, but dealt with foul trouble. Had to get very creative defensively, and really, all credit to Serbia. They are a great team, and they played extremely well. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. 9.30 p.m. in Belgrade right now. Maybe they've been celebrating all day. Maybe they're waiting for the result of uh, this tennis match, which has just gotten underway. Ben Shelton versus Novak Djokovic in the semifinals of the U.S. Open at Flushing Meadows. But uh, quite a day for the Serbian national team. Not as great for the Canadian men as... um, They'll have to battle the Americans for bronze. Will the Canadians, Serbia, off to the final against Germany in a surprise matchup of those two nations? Let's talk to Vivek Jacob, Sportsnet.ca and Raptors.com writer. How's it going, Vivek? Are you tired? Have you have you napped? I have napped, thankfully. I'm doing all right. Uh, you know, got the early start, and now we got the tennis, so it, it's a good day. Uh, but it's a, it's a bit busy, that's for sure. Yeah, the, the sports they are good. It's it's a full uh, full day of sporting action for us today, and this this uh, match um, could be a beauty. Uh, we'll see. Anyways, but uh, let's start with the basketball. Just in an overall yep. sense, um, I, I saw Dan Schulman tweet out that like he thinks that the Canadian um, entry the, the the FIBA World Cup was a success, and I was surprised to to, to have a, a, or to see a tweet in which you know it was possible that. The opposite was true. To me, it was an maybe not unqualified success, but I, I think a, a rousing success. Or, or maybe I'm just judging it on on just the, the recent heartbra- heartbreaks, obviously 2015 and, and 2021. Maybe it's not so cut and dried. Like, did, did you view the Canadians getting through to the semifinals of the, of the World Cup of Basketball a, a rousing success? Yes, absolutely. And I think anyone who doesn't, is kind of not respecting where the game is at globally. Like you look at the fact that the final is Serbia versus Germany, that shows how deep the talent pool now is globally. And so I look at this Canada team, my expectations coming in 
were just, hey, can you qualify for the Olympics? This was uh, this men's program had not qualified for the Olympics since 2000. This was the 15th ranked team coming in. There was plenty of hype that went into the Olympics in 2016, and you narrowly missed out there. Plenty of hype going into 2020, and you narrowly missed out there. And so for all the talk, we've been waiting for a team that will back it up. And I think we saw enough qualities, even beyond the results, that show that this is a roster now that can back it up and can go uh, to the Olympics next year in Paris and look to medal there as well. Yeah, and and, and maybe have Jamal Murray. Um, because it, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it felt like they were a little too reliant on Shea Gilgis-Alexander-Vivek. Oh, no question. I, I think when you look at the Olympics next year, you want to have Jamal Murray in the mix. You want to have Andrew Wiggins in the mix. Uh, and, and then you look down the line, you've still got more guys to choose from, right? There is an Andrew Nembard, a Corey Joseph, a Brandon Clark. There's plenty of depth to pick from. Size will be an issue. That is one thing when you look at Canadian players across the board. Uh, it, it's hard to find that quality center that, that can be a real difference maker. Uh, Serbia will be quite happy to have uh, Nikola Jokic in the mix next year, uh, as difficult as they were here. But uh, I think Shooting will absolutely be addressed, and playmaking will be addressed too. And I'm sure that'll take off Shea Gilgis Alexander's shoulders. Yeah, I mean, do, do we need to start? Uh, I don't know, breeding taller children. What, what do we need to do here? Do we need to start <laughs> moving people closer to nuclear reactors? I don't know. Like Zach Eady, incredible college career that continues, and and Michael Grange pointing out that you know maybe there'll be some uncertainty as far as his NBA career when the Olympics come around in in Paris. I mean, what, what is the future at the big man position for this team? Yeah, you know, Canada, we're blessed with a lot of power forward types, right? Like I mentioned, Brandon Clark, you've also got Chris Boucher. Um, and so I, I think that's where Canada has a lot of advantages to create. But it's just like, like that big brooding center uh, that's missing. And when you look at the long-term outlook, I think it is going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Uh, thing that the U.S. lacks as well, and you, when you try to figure out why that is, look at the way the NBA is now. Mm-hmm. It's not about that big brooding center, right? You want the big guys who can space the floor uh, and even maybe give you a bit of playmaking. And so I think that is if, if that is the end goal for these players in North America, then it's going to be tough to develop that. Uh, and so I think that is something that needs to be if you can a big bruising center that that would change a lot of things for this program. Yeah, no, it's an interesting uh, point about the the differences in in style of play in the NBA and and the FIBA game maybe favoring you know a, a more traditional style mm-hmm. big man uh, and maybe giving an advantage to those European nations. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that's where you see the effective continuity of chemistry with, you know, you look at Serbia's offense uh, against Canada and just, it, it was just constantly in sync. And when you look at a team that has come together pretty quickly, you look at Nick Nurse moving on and Jordi Fernandez having to step in uh, in such a short time frame, there's only so much that you can make up for that. And so any tiny mistake that you make on the defensive end, whether it's your rotations or whether it's a miscommunication, they're going to punish you for it. And I think that's where, you know, knowing that style of being familiar with that all the way 
from your childhood, I think that is what gives them a bit of an advantage and kind of, you know, evens the playing field. This setting. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, as disappointing as the, the result was today, I think we should still spend some time reflecting on how far this, this program has gotten. And uh, I was, I was doing research before we had Todd McCullough on yesterday. And I, I went back and read your piece from a year ago about that 2000 Olympic team. And then the, well, and before that, the 99 uh, America uh, team that, that had to beat Puerto Rico in Puerto Rico to get to that Olympic team. And it's Steve Nash and it's, it's Todd McCullough, and and it's it's a bunch <laughs> of guys that were playing in Europe, and and Rowan Barrett, and our own Sherman Hamilton. I mean, how far has this program come in the almost twenty five years uh, between the last uh, Olympics and now? Well, I think this is kind of that landmark moment that we've been waiting for, right? I think we've seen a steady progress in terms of Canadian talent progressing to the NBA level. Canadian talent, even just really. Uh, you know, maximizing itself on the NCAA stage as well. And so that continuation to the NBA has been excellent to see. We just haven't seen it translate to FIBA success, international success. And some of that obviously has had to do with players not turning up. And that's where even with Nick Nurse gone, you have to give him credit for having that meeting in 2021 and saying, hey, this Whoever wants to play for this team is going to have to make a three-year commitment if you really want to be a part of uh, the team for Paris in 2024. And he got that commitment, and that's where you've started to see uh, that continuity. Shea Gilgis-Alexander, he didn't didn't show up for this tournament here. He played in qualifiers uh, before this, and he's been representing Canada. And so that's, I think, the big difference maker. That's, I think, the thing that to change the most and so now when you get this commitment and you have this success i think the big thing that changes is prior to this and i know i'm going on uh, on a bit here but prior to this players were probably looking at it and saying i don't want to be part of that next group that also failed to qualify yeah and and now you've qualified now you've got another bar to set and now players will be looking and saying oh i want to be a part of paris then after Paris, I want to be a part of uh, L.A. for 2028. And so now I think, you know, success is going to breed further success. Yeah, I, I agree. But let me play counter. <laughs> now, yeah, now the bar is high, right? It, it's almost like, hey, Leafs had to win a round of the playoffs. It's the lowest bar on planet Earth. They, <laughs> fin- <laughs> they finally did it. And now it truly is like, come on, like time to win a Stanley Cup here. I mean, they did it. They got through to the Olympics. And like I said, I thought it was a, a, a rousing success for, for Team Canada because, you know, like I remember how painful it was in 2021 and, yeah, how painful it was in, in 2015 and, and, and the Olympics in this continent feel more important, frankly, than the World Cup. And you know what? As much as Europe talks about how important this tournament is, yeah, and I know Nikolai Jokic had a, a pretty short off season, but the, the world's best players were not at this event. They will be there in Paris. But now that they've they've asserted themselves, like they're, they're no longer tripping on rakes anymore, Vivek. Like they're they're just like a normal. They're they're where they're supposed to be. And you know what? The FIBA rankings will maybe make the 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 path to success a little bit easier beyond the Olympics, right? That the, their ranking will mm-hmm. not put them in these tougher pots. Yeah, the bar is going to be a lot higher for this team, I think, going forward. I agree. I agree. I, I think when you look at 
our first part of this conversation and talking about whether it was a success or not, we talk about the goal being the Olympics. Let's face it, Canada's best finish at the World Cup prior to this was sixth in 1982. And so to already have clinched your best ever finish, to know that you will be third or fourth, now that is going to be the bar going forward. Okay, how do you get to that gold medal game? That's what you're going to be judged on. Mm-hmm. In the Olympics, you know, we talked about the difference between the FIBA World Cup and the Olympics. Guess what? The Olympics is just going to have 12 teams. It's going to be pretty restricted compared to the FIBA World Cup in terms of the number of great teams that you're going to have to go up against. Obviously, the U.S. team will be better because they all are the Olympics. I think beyond that, I think Canada will look at that and say, okay, how do we get a medal at the Olympics? And then, as you said, after that it becomes, okay, you set the stage on this. And I, I think as the talent improves, they'll embrace that challenge, I hope. Yeah, uh, me too. It would be nice to, to come away from this tournament with, with something tangible. It's so weird that we, we you know, I get it. First and second, and the, those guys, they get they medals. Why, why is third, you know, such a huge delineation between third and fourth? But that's that's the way we've decided in, in sports. Uh, so that the, the loser of Sunday morning's uh, matchup gets absolutely nothing, and, and the, the winner gets uh, a bronze medal. I mean, beyond that, how, how important is this matchup against the Americans on Sunday? Yeah, I think they, they want to finish on a high, right? And I think they want to finish with something to show for all their efforts. And uh, you, you know, in terms of the FIBA ranking, if you can knock off uh, the U.S., you you can come tournament saying the number one and the number two team in the FIBA rankings because you already beat Spain. Uh, and so I think that'll be something great to say as well. Uh, and so you look at this matchup, I think you say that Shea Gilgis-Alexander will be the best player on the court. And then the U.S. probably have two, three, four, and five between Anthony Edwards and Tyrese Halliburton and Mikhail Bridges. So uh, I think it's going to come down to the depth. It's going to come down to, hey, can Dylan Brooks have another one of those uh, shooting games? Can uh, Lou Dort knock down a couple of threes? Can R.J. Barrett uh, give you an efficient 20? Uh, and then, you know, where's uh, Kelly Olynyk and Dwight Powell going to be at? I, I think... You know, when you look at this matchup, we talked about the size. They're not going to go up against that big brooding center. It's going to be Jaron Jackson Jr. Um, and maybe we see Walker Kessler because he hasn't really played much up to this point. Um, but it's going to be an opportunity to really show that, hey, we came here to make a statement and we did. Well, and beyond that, this is a rivalry in, in many aspects of sport and in hockey. It's a pretty good mm-hmm. one between the Americans and the United States. It's supposed to be one. It has for years. It's supposed to be one between Canada and the United States. It's just the Canadians that have not held up their end of the bargain. This feels like almost the start of maybe something that we could see for the next foreseeable future of Vivek that the United States and Canada from a talent perspective, like obviously the U S is going to be favored to win everything internationally in basketball, even though they don't anymore and did not meddle at this event four years ago, but this is supposed to be one of the best matchups internationally in this sport, isn't it? It is. It is. And like you said, it's, it's been a long time coming for Canada and it looks like they're finally here. So for all the hype that was built into this tournament saying, Hey, can we get a Canada U S final? even though it's a Bronco game, why not show what you've got? Why not show that, you know, the same way 
that uh, Serbia and Germany and Lithuania uh, and Spain before them, Argentina before that, have made that statement to the U.S. saying, hey, you are absolutely going to need your A-team to beat us. I think Canada has a chance to make that statement as well and say, hey, this squad that you've got out here, this isn't going to cut it. Um, what did you think of the, the first major test for, for Jordi Fernandez in, in you know, a, a not ideal circumstances? Obviously, you'd like to have a, a couple-year run-up to, to taking over an international squad and, and had to, to fill in when, when Nick Nurse could not fulfill his duties as the head coach of the Philadelphia 76ers. Um, what, what did you make of the, of the first test we got from uh, Jordi Fernandez? I'd probably give him a B plus. I think he was very good. Uh, I don't think he was perfect. I think he'll probably look back on things from that Brazil game and wish he could have done things differently. He'd probably look back on this game uh, against Serbia and wish he could have done a couple things differently. But I think overall, he, he's been very good um, with with the cards that he's been dealt. And I, I loved watching those uh, those timeouts, uh, the way he addresses his team, um, the willingness to challenge his players. I, I think especially when you look at that Brazil loss, the way uh, he called out Shea and RJ and really demanded more from them. I think that's an encouraging sign because I don't think you can do that without building a healthy level of respect first. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think it looks like he has that. I think, you know, you look at the game when Canada clinched that Olympic spot after defeating Spain, the way they kind of showered him, um, with the water bottles and everything. And I think he's, and I think in a short space of time to be able to do that speaks volumes. Uh, before they go. So there's, um, there's plenty of reasons to watch the gold medal game. I mean, despite the fact that, I mean, outside of the, the fact that it is the gold medal game of the, the FIBA world cup of basketball for Raptors fans, uh, they should note that Dennis Schroeder's had a great, great tournament, and he's led Germany, well, one past the Americans and, and maybe to a gold medal at this event. Like, how encouraged should Raptors fans be that that, that Dennis Schroeder looks uh, pretty damn good right now? They should be very encouraged. I, I think that he's had a great tournament. I think uh, his leadership has stood out throughout, uh, and the team in general has spoken highly about him. So I think that's very encouraging. Obviously, I think the the caveats that I'd say are, you know, the people that dig too much into the three-point shooting that has looked very good, it's a different line in FIBA than it is in the NBA. So uh, you probably want to just stick with what you've seen in the NBA for that. Uh, and then, you know, in terms of the guard uh, penetration, that's something the Raptors have lacked. And that's something that should excite them because guess what? In FIBA, you, can't ha- you can uh, have your center, your big men, just kind of patrol the paint and just hang out there. And so for him to be able to constantly attack, Steve Kerr praised him uh, for the way he was able to cause problems and really compromise the U.S. defense. And so I think that's probably the most encouraging part for Raptors fans. Uh, We'll see how he fares against uh, a Serbian team that looked uh, pretty damn good against the Canadians early, early this morning. Uh, Vivek, appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. Uh, There's Vivek Jacob, Raptors.com. Uh, working for Sportsnet.ca as well. I really wanted to see the Canadians win it all. I really wanted to see a gold medal matchup between the United States and Canada. I can't get all that hyped up about a bronze medal if I'm being 
totally honest. It does feel like, hey, when, when you're on the golf course and you got a chance for 79 and then you know you're not going to get a 79 and, like, what's the difference between 80, 81, 82, 83? Like, it's all pretty similar <laughs> to me. Like, they, they, they did their job. Okay, would they like to have a bronze medal? Sure, I guess. History will record one of these teams being third and getting a bronze medal. The other one will, will finish fourth. I don't really care that much about that. What I care most about, though, and in a way, I'm not glad that Canada won, but once Canada lost, and there was a chronological sequence of events here, once Canada lost, I was glad the Americans lost. This should be Canada and the United States in hockey, where Canada's the powerhouse, right? Canada, dude, we invented this game. Kind of invented basketball, though, too. Uh, Canada is the birthplace. It's, it's the mecca of hockey. It's so cold up there. All they do is play hockey. So obviously Canada should be favored in every international event, whether or not there are the best players in the world at that event. Canada, Canada, Canada. But right there, man, the Americans. Look at the American talent. And those two head-to-head, what a great matchup that is whenever we get to see best-on-best best international hockey, which we don't very often because the NHL has decided never to go back to the Olympics ever again, it feels like. But that's what we should be watching when it comes to basketball is that the Americans were the dominant force for forever, ever, ever, ever in the dream team in Barcelona in the early 90s and and then the world is caught up and that's all well and good and Canada should be right there nipping at their heels but as like the perennial underdog and there should be like some animosity between the two... It's just Canada has been so inept on the international stage when it comes to basketball. We haven't gotten a chance to see it at all. And and this is not the most representative group of basketball players that we're going to see. I would say that in Paris, you're going to see a very different American team as well as maybe a slightly different Canadian team, but maybe this starts something. On the other hand, because the bar is so high for the Americans and that, you know, very differently from the Canadians, like the the bar of success is already at that point where it's not about fuzzies and or warm and fuzzies and, 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 you know, a, a narrow loss to a pretty good German team. Like this is already an abject failure to the Americans. And despite the fact that history, recent history, especially in international basketball, would tell you that it's the Americans uh, from a talent perspective are very close to everybody else around the world. They're going home with their heads hanging. And I think if the Canadians come out early in this game and show that they actually care more about this game on Sunday morning, you could see an American team decide that, yeah, you know what, let's let's go back home. The other interesting part of this, too, and I mentioned this to Michael Grange yesterday in our conversation, that Arash Madani reported that Team Canada was looking to keep the minutes a little restricted when it comes to Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Remember, this is a guy who's a pretty key contributor for a team that already won 40 games a season ago in the Oklahoma City Thunder, who's looking to take yet another step forward this season, guy was getting MVP votes a season ago. I mean, might be 
I guess according to the betting lines, would not be a, a betting favorite to win the MVP. But like, I'm sure he thinks that that's not out of the realm of possibility that he wins an MVP. I think he's 10th favorite going into the season in Shea Gilgis Alexander. That maybe there's like a back channel call made from Oklahoma City to Jordy Fernandez who says that was great. You know what? And this is a, a great thing to put on Shea's resume and maybe helps him get off to a great start this upcoming NBA season. But but now that you don't have a goal to play for, do you mind like playing him twenty minutes? Like you, you do have a full roster, and you, hey, you know what? There, here's you, here's how you sell it: that you're looking to get those other guys a little experience at the international level. I don't know what to expect on Sunday morning. Here's what I know: it has been a success for Canada basketball, and the win on Sunday against Spain being down 12 points going into the fourth quarter will go down in the annals of one of the, the best moments on the international stage for this program in its history. Uh, they'll play the Americans for bronze Sunday morning, very early, 4.30. All right, when we come back, well, the Kansas City Chiefs are looking up at the top of the AFC West after losing to the Detroit Lions yesterday. They're looking up at three teams, but one of those teams is the Denver Broncos Head coached by Sean Payton, who our next guest wrote a spectacular feature on. Seth Wickersham, ESPN senior writer, joins me next. He he wrote a a really interesting piece on a really interesting fellow in Sean Payton. He joins me next. The Fan Drive Time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Lou. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Turns out Travis Kelsey, very important to the Kansas City Chiefs, as is Chris Jones, I suppose. Um, but boy, had every opportunity to win that game against the Detroit Lions. Instead, it's uh, a big win for Dan Campbell's Lions. And the first time the Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs have, have lost game one of the season under Patrick Mahomes. And as a result, Sean Payton's Denver Broncos have a chance to uh, secure Top spot in the AFC West as they have a divisional opponent, uh, the Raiders, coming up on Sunday. Let's talk to Seth Wickersham, ESPN senior writer, uh, author of Sean Payton Doesn't Forget Anything, uh, the feature on Sean Payton on ESPN.com. He joins us now. How's it going, Seth? Hey, I'm great. How are you? Good. I, I want to start here, which is like at, at the anecdote at the beginning of your piece um, because I didn't realize people go to Idaho, like really important people go to Idaho. I'd never heard of Gauzer Ranch, but you, you say Justin Bieber and Kim Kardashian are members. Wayne Gretzky plays golf with Sean Payton. Uh, wh- what am I missing about Idaho? Yeah, it was beautiful. It was um, not only that. So Gauzer Ranch is kind of up in the, in the mountains, and it, it, it's really – it's not the easiest place to get to. You either have to take a, a windy road through the mountains to get there, or you're on Coeur d'Alene and you boat in. And there were boats stationed outside of the main dock where Gaza Ranch would be that were filled with photographers waiting for Kim Kardashian 
or Bieber to uh, to exit. <laughs> wow, it's funny, you know. But yeah, I mean, you know, Sean Payton. It's where he spends his vacation, and he um, uh, every there's this group called the the Breakfast Club, and they meet every morning at eight o'clock, and they you know bet obscene amounts of money on golf. Mm-hmm. And it's him. It's it's John Elway. It's Gretzky. Um, uh, there are some businessmen. Um, but anyway, it's you know it, it's a really 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 fun group. It was a cool thing to kind of witness and, and absorb in um, during the couple of days that I was there with him. Yeah, Idaho. Who knew? Uh, yeah, it's apparently more than just potatoes. Um, so the, these NFL head coaches are nuts, right? Like just by and large, just just nuts. So, uh, but I wonder in, in your experience and spending so much time with him, how beyond the typical NFL head coach behavior is Sean Payton nuts, and 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 maybe specifically paranoid, especially about the NFL in general. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not a job for the well-adjusted, right? Um, and those who succeed in it are spectacularly, uh, you know, not well-adjusted. He's a different guy. Um, this is the first time I really spent a ton of time with him. Um, obviously, talked to him over the years, but this is the first time I spent a ton of time with him. And I think outside of his creative process, which is different than most coaches, you know, he's a night owl. He often stays till like 2, 3 in the morning. Whereas, like, you know, Bill Belichick might be getting into the office at 4.35 a.m. Most coaches are morning people. But the scar tissue from all of his fights with the league office during his time in New Orleans um, is very present. And it it plays a part in his everyday life. And it's one of the main reasons why he left the Saints. Um, We can get into that if you want to. But it's one of the main reasons why he picked the Broncos, because I think he feels like that he has a better chance to win in Denver with the league, you know, these new owners and the league kind of invested in their success in a way that he didn't really see in new Orleans. But there's no doubt that those grievances over the years, both real and imagined have, have piled up to the point where, you know, it's part of his everyday reality. Yeah. And, and the Nikel uh, Roby Coleman penalty. I mean, it, it rings in our head after the the, the bounty gate mm-hmm. s- suspension. No, no doubt. I mean, is he paranoid, or, or I mean, being embedded with him and, and listening to his reasons, and then you know, going over the 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 history of of Sean Payton in New Orleans. Do you think he has been treated unfairly by the NFL? I don't know. You know, all teams feel like they get screwed by the league, right? And, you know, there's no doubt, though, that um, he has been paranoid, and he's incredibly cynical when it comes to everything with the league office. Um, There's an anecdote in the story where he – there's a guy on the sideline at Saints games, and he was there for a year and a half, and Peyton was convinced that he was a league spy Mm -hmm. and he would give him like evil looks. And then he realized that he was the on-site concussion specialist and he went over and apologized and introduced himself. But like, um, um, you know, I think that all those grievances piled up over the years. I mean, remember it was the first coach since 1978 who was suspended for a season without pay, locked out from the league for bounty gate. And then, when that no call happened in the NFC championship, um, you know, essentially costing him a super, a chance at a Super Bowl, um, you know, that, that hurt. And I, I think there are some things that maybe people don't really recover from. They learn how to put it away 
but they never really recover from it. And um, before th- these, this year, the, the last time we had talked at length was in 2022, and the Saints had just done a study that showed that, that ranked teams in terms of penalties drawn, so the yeah. penalties get, that get thrown on their opponents. And the Saints were like at the bottom of the league every year for four years in a row, only team. Yeah. And it seemed just beyond reason that he could, that his offense in that dome with those rule changes can't get a flag. And yet that's what was happening. And he walked away from the Saints within weeks of that conversation because I think he just felt like that he had no chance to get a jump ball. Yeah, he sounds a lot like Leaf fans because, yeah, Lee, Lee, Toronto yeah. Leaf fans have gone over the, the number of penalties called um, against their opposition over the last couple of years, and it hasn't matched up to the amount of offensive talent on this team. I, I digress slightly, uh, Seth. But, yeah, yeah. no, I, I wonder. So he takes the year off, goes into media, and then ends up uh, with the Denver Broncos, who, as you rightly point out, like, yeah, they, they, it's a different deal as far as how much the NFL would uh, theoretically want them to succeed do you think it was always his plan to 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 get back into coaching there's no doubt you know his wife Skyline didn't even show up for his press conference when he stepped down from the saints because she figured that he was going to join the dolphins within days remember there was right. there was that plan and of course dolphins owner steven ross ended up you know getting hit with a huge tampering penalty suspended i think for half the year last year from league meetings um but there's no doubt that he was always going to jump in. And then once that plan with the Dolphins got blown up, he decided to, you know, sit out the year, do TV, and really kind of view it as like a soft launch for retirement. Um, you know, he figured that he would spend, you know, during the week he would be in Idaho and he would meet with the Breakfast Club every day in golf. And then he'd fly to L.A. for weekends where he would do um, his Fox show. But, you know, the endless summer was not the endless summer. Like as, as, as August came around, um, you know, Elway went back to Denver where his kids live and Gretzky, you know, went back to hockey season and, and pretty soon he was by himself at that table trying to cobble together a foursome. And I think, you know, it, it reiterated his already, you know, pretty firm desire to go back to coaching and, um, you know, the, and then the Broncos opportunity came, came available and, um, and, you know, they, they made a trade and invested in him. Yeah. Okay, so let, let, let's talk about that, that Broncos team. And, and I think the, the big pull quote out of your piece that is getting a lot of run is the stop kissing the babies thing as far as his, his advice to Russell Wilson in, in that he's too worried about, you know, how his appearance, his public stature, and should be focused more on, I guess, the task at hand. Do you think Sean Payton believes in Russell Wilson? He also signed Jared Stidham to a, a pretty... Uh, Pretty hefty contract for a backup quarterback. Yeah, I, I I do think he, you know, I think that he is invested in in Wilson, um, and you know, I think he meant that in a that was a that was a Bill Parcellsian type of message delivered. It wasn't a dressing down, but it was it was meant to be something that they both could laugh at. But he meant it. I mean, last year the Broncos, everybody went way overboard in that organization with promoting Russell Wilson and giving him the run of the building and almost separating him from the team. And I mean, the Broncos had been so starved for a franchise quarterback. You couldn't blame them for wanting to get excited and get the fan base excited, but it went too far. And I think that Sean Payton wanted Russell Wilson to kind of return back to his roots and, you know, be known as a quarterback first rather than Ciara's husband and this kind of 
you know, American sports, um, you know, famous figure. But I believe that he's invested in Russell Wilson, and I think that he – I think Russell Wilson is going to be a better player because Sean Payton can drop an offense better than anyone that Russell Wilson's ever worked with. That said, I mean, if if it's November and the team isn't winning and Russell Wilson's not playing well, then I don't think he's going to be afraid to to sit him. I mean, I, I don't, but you know, we were in practice and we would watch, I, I would watch him watch film of practice in his office. And there were times when Wilson made what appeared to be an inaccurate throw and it actually turned out that he was throwing it, it exactly to where he was supposed to throw it. And the receiver, you know, wasn't there and wasn't doing the receiver's job. So all this stuff, um, you know, I, I, I don't think that Russell Wilson's going to come out of the gate and throw seven touchdowns in their opener against Oakland or against Vegas this weekend. But I do think that Russell Wilson will be a better player and really he couldn't have asked for someone better to try to utilize his talents. I mean, Sean Payton obviously was phenomenally successful with Drew Brees, but he won with Jameis Winston. He won with Taysom Hill. Um, He won with Teddy Bridgewater. There are other guys. He's just a, he's a good offensive mind. One of the best. Yeah. And he, and he has a Super Bowl, but it, it's it's only one. And and you point out in in the piece that he's obviously aware of his his standing in NFL history and concerned about it and thinking about it. And the Hall of Fame is a goal. And there's some pretty great NFL head coaches that also have a Super Bowl who are not in yet. I mean, is this also an ideal spot for him to build that Hall of Fame resume? Because we we, we try to parse out coaching from from an NFL team, right? We tried to do it in New England, and oh, now that. Bill Belichick is without Tom Brady. Well, we can finally see who was better than who, and it's an inexact science. But this one's as pretty good as we can get. I mean, it, it really does feel like it's it's the head coach is is the biggest difference between last year's Broncos and this year's Broncos. Do you think he has a you know if if he's able to to lead this Broncos team to the levels that they were expected to be a season ago? Is that not a, a pretty good notch in his belt as far as building that Hall of Fame case? I think so, but and he thinks that the Broncos give him the best chance. I mean, I think that that's important. I mean, he, he went there, you know, obviously he's invested in Russell Wilson, but he went there to be the Broncos head coach for the duration of his contract. Uh, And um, again, you know, the owners are about, you know, they've owned the team for about a year. Um, They're investing a lot in the facility, um, in the staff. Uh, You know, I think they just put a hundred million dollars into the stadium and, um, you know, again, they're by far the richest owners in the NFL by many magnitudes. And I think that Peyton thinks that the league's invested in their success in a way that they just weren't with New Orleans. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's he's formed that belief um, over the course of 16 years. And, you know, I, I think it would be a stretch to say that it's totally irrational. Mm-hmm. Um. Do you think he regrets the Nathaniel Hackett comments right out of the gates with, with uh, USA Today? And I, I know you, you've referenced that maybe, you know, there was a, a galaxy brain thing happening there. I, do you think there's a level of regret, uh, of regret that, that that got as much um, run as it did? Um, I don't know. I think that there's a brashness to him that's kind of part of his brand. And, you know, that team hasn't had a lot of confidence for a long time. I mean, that said... I think Sean thought he was stating the obvious. Yeah, it was. You know, it was like, obvious. I mean, it's hard to argue that 
you know, they take a guy who's a quarterback who's a nine-time Pro Bowler and not only has by far his worst year, but the coach doesn't even last a full season. I mean, it was one of the worst, you know, coaching jobs in the in, in, in modern NFL history. I mean, I, I think that, like, that – I don't think it's that – debatable you know and i think that when the broncos hired him they weren't just hiring a playbook because the playbook is really his imagination they were hiring a shock to the system he's one of those guys that brings a program with him and he's the program and it's incredibly difficult stressful i mean he's rubbed some people the wrong way in that building um but that's what they wanted and um you know we'll see whether it works uh, are you worried about how he is going to eventually adjust to retirement? Because nobody gets to do this forever. And yeah, if early returns or any indication, he is not bound to like it too much. He's someone who I just think would struggle without football. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, everyone's going to have to cross that, that bridge at some point. I, you know, we were at, when we were at Gaza ranch after the round, you know, there, everyone sat around the, the bar and got drinks and it was Gretzky and Elway and, you know, all these guys and um, Kerry Price was there. Um, and, you know, that's their day. They, they play golf, they get drinks, they, they go eat dinner, whatever it is. And Peyton was like quiet during that. And he was like chewing his fingernails. And, you know, he just got up and I followed him and we got back in his golf cart and he went and played another nine holes <laughs> so that he could feel better about how he finished the day. And I, I saw it as kind of symbolic of his, returning to coaching you know he's just someone who life feels a little unfinished for him right now yeah and and it's 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 been a successful career and and perhaps this next chapter will be as successful i mean speaking of retirement uh i of course you are the author of it's better to be feared the new england patriots dynasty in the pursuit of greatness tom brady is going to be in new england this sunday honored i guess at at halftime although there's some cryptic stuff about like how how special an event it is going to be as he is finally officially retired, uh, and and I guess Patriots fans can properly honor him. Um, I, I'd like to see some uh, emotion out of Tom Brady. What what are you expecting out of a guy that you've chronicled for so long? I, I mean, I think that he'll be. Um, I, I I think it'll be emotional for him. Sure. I mean, this is the first year since he was in eighth grade i think that he's not playing football right now which is astounding and i you know i think it will be emotional for him i mean i think when 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 the when the bucks came back came back to and they played in new england you know he was a um he was the opponent and he you know had a pretty you know focused outlook on that game and i think that this will be different i mean it's kind of pure love I think he's in a good place with Belichick. That hasn't always been the case the past five, six years. Um, And I think it'll be, you know, I think it'll be really special for him. I can't wait to see it. I can't wait for a full slate of football games also on Sunday. Uh, Seth, it it was a spectacular uh, feature. Thanks so much for for writing it, and, and thanks for doing this today. Thank you. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. There's Seth Wickersham, ESPN senior writer. The story is called Sean Payton Doesn't Forget Anything. He is a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, except instead of being paranoid, the referees are against him. And boy, there is evidence to suggest, you know, more Ontario referees than anywhere else. The National Hockey League would make sense. More eyeballs on the Toronto Maple Leafs. More likely discussion about how the NHL is rigged 
If calls go in favor of the Maple Leafs, then the opposite. Sean Payton feels the same way, same way about his tenure in New Orleans. And there's reasons to believe that the NFL would, in fact, officiate his team differently. This guy was suspended for an entire year because of the Bounty Gate scandal. And was that fair on the surface? Like, Greg Williams also suspended? Like, it does appear that Greg Williams was the mastermind behind all of that and definitely the head of the snake. But I guess when you're the head coach, the, the buck stops with you. Does it make sense that the NFL would view a guy whose reputation was certainly tarnished over that incident and look at a market in New Orleans and a Saints team that is not exactly a glamour market and say, you know what? If in doubt, don't call the penalty that benefits the New Orleans Saints. All these guys are so paranoid. But it does feel like in reading Seth's piece that, that Sean Payton is at another level. It also does feel like, and, and despite what Seth said, that, yeah, he's going to do his darndest to have Russell Wilson be the quarterback of this franchise when it reaches the heights that it wants to reach. And they have so much invested in him, including multiple first-round picks and acquiring him in the massive contract. Jared Stidham not only got a contract that isn't commensurate with normal backup quarterback contracts, he got a two-year, $10 million deal. You need to go back and read some of the comments that Sean Payton has made in regards to what he believes the future of Jared Stidham is. And it's this guy has starting quarterback potential. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean with the Denver Broncos. But clearly when they went out early in free agency and acquired him, it was not a 0% chance that that was going to happen in Denver. We'll see. If, if Russell Wilson doesn't perform, it's not at all out of the realm of possibility with new ownership, with a new front office in place. That Yeah, it's just a sunk cost with Russell Wilson and you move on with the guy who's going to give you the best chance to win a football game and win enough football games to get in the playoffs that you can point to a season in which you were the major differentiating factor between a team that was abysmal to watch offensively and one that maybe gets into the playoffs and maybe you rehabilitated a quarterback to a degree that he was viewed as not starting caliber. Now that's a pretty good thing to say when you're looking back in your career and you're pointing out reasons why you are Hall of Fame worthy. Already has one Super Bowl um, but yeah, this next season and the upcoming seasons in Denver could be crucial in building that Hall of Fame resume. Uh, lastly, Idaho. I had no idea. And I think like most people who read the story, I went onto the website of uh, that country club and tried to understand more about it. Gauza Ranch, it's called. It looks ridiculous. I guess I, 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 I've been to a lot of places. I've done some traveling. Hey, I've been to Europe even. Can't say that I've ever, one, been to Idaho, ever thought about going to Idaho. How is it possible that every major celebrity in North America not only goes to Idaho, but they go to this one place called Gauzer Ranch? I honestly had never heard of it. I didn't even know there were sites to see. Like, I kind of, this is going to be offensive to the Nebraska-ites, if there are any listening, I kind of viewed Idaho as like similar to Nebraska where it's just like it's fields. And now I'm going to offend 
Manitobans. Like Manitoba, there's not a lot going on. You're not, no mountains. You can watch your dog run away for days, right? But no, apparently there's, there's beautiful sights to be seen in Idaho and apparently beautiful golfing as well um, because that golf course looks beautiful. So kudos to you, Idaho. You're on the map. I, I didn't realize you were, you were worth traveling to. All right, when we come back, Blue Jays and Royals getting set to start a three-game series. Bo Bichette is back. He's been activated off the IL. I haven't seen a lineup yet, but here's what I'm going to guess. That the Blue Jays, when faced with a choice as to whether to play their best player or not play their best player, despite the fact that they didn't do so with David Schneider, they're going to do so with Bo Bichette. Oh, here, yeah, no, Bo Bichette in the lineup. He's hitting second, playing shortstop. George Springer is in right field today. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. at first base. David Schneider is your DH today. So no Brandon Belt as the Blue Jays face a reliever for the Royals. They're going to get the, the whole Royals bullpen. Kevin Biggio at third base. Whit Merrifield at second base. Dalton Varsho in there at left field. Alejandro Kirk doing the catching. Kevin Kiermaier in center field. Also of note, Ben Nicholson-Smith doing some great reporting down at the ballpark today. Um, Dalton Varsho has been thrown on the catcher's gear a little bit, taking some reps behind the plate. I don't think the plan is for him to start any of these games behind the plate because, remember, this is not a guy that just did this, like, sparingly. Like, 30 games last year he played with Arizona where he was the catcher. And actually, the defensive stats were pretty favorable to him. He had one of the best pop times in all of Major League Baseball. But, yeah, he's in play. As an option behind the plate, uh, behind the plate as Danny Jansen works his way back from the broken finger, and he saw a specialist. No update on that, but uh, Alejandro Kirk doing the catching, hitting eighth, which is not a position I've seen him many times this season. All right, when we come back, though, we're going to talk to one half of Blair and Barker, the Barker part. Kevin Barker joins me next as we get set for the the final series against. Uh, a sub-500 opponent for the Blue Jays, Kansas City Royals. The fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Annis, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Fresh views on everything in the National Football League. It's The Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan drive time. Sportsnet 590, the fan. I'm Ben Ennis. After this show, every single day, 5 o'clock, I step out, in steps Jeff Blair, and in steps Kevin Barker. And the first thing they do, they turn up the temperature in the studio here. As if, like, 70 degrees Fahrenheit is, is too cold. Kevin Barker in studio. not 70 degrees, though. If it were 70 degrees, that'd be different it's like 67 degrees no 69 how can you degrees. talk <laughs> like <laughs> some would say not very well but well, that was, i mean I, that would make me that would make me your teeth not chatter? be able to talk at all yeah so i have to turn it up to 71 or 72 and then you know it gets me fired up and then mm-hmm. i look at jeff and i probably say things i shouldn't say no that's not true mm-hmm. uh i just had seth wickersham on ESPN writer, he wrote a big story about Sean Payton, head coach of your your team. Yeah. Your Denver Broncos. Who, yeah. How about the Chiefs? Yeah. <laughs> how about that? I was going to bring that up, too. Oh, that's tremendous. 
<laughs> I was yeah. so happy. You're, Half I, my house is really happy. Yeah. Half my house hated me for being happy. How did Hazel end up a Chiefs fan, by the way? I, it's a great, that's a, that's the question you'd have to ask her. I'm not real sure. I'm sure. I think it was an old tight end. She liked, mm. yeah, there was a, re, there's a really good reason. Okay. But I, I, Tony I, try to for, I try to forget Yeah, because her team always annihilates my team. Yeah. And it's a very bad time in my household. So what, what last night told me is they're just as good as the Broncos. <laughs> you know, well, Broncos are a half game up on the Chiefs right now. I'll take Bro- it. Broncos are in first place. Guess who's not? Kansas City Chiefs. Um, yeah, are you bullish on Sean Payton? Have you? I mean, have you? I don't know how big a, an NFL fan you are, but you know, this is a Broncos uh, team with all the, like the, the Broncos were. You know what the Broncos were last year? Broncos in 2022 were the Blue Jays in 2013, where they were preseason World Series favorites. They make all the trades with the Marlins. Remember, they they go out and get Josh Johnson, and they get Jose Reyes, and like right out of the gates, they stunk to high heavens, and they were one of the worst teams in all of Major League Baseball as far as a disappointment yeah. is concerned. Last year, that was the Denver Broncos. And, and what, you're going to tell me that the expectations weren't as high on that Broncos team last year? Yeah, you got to have a quarterback. You got to have yeah, an offensive that, line. You yes, gotta, but okay, and we... You got to have a decent defense. Like they went gotta, out and got a guy who's headed to the Hall of Fame and is a Super Bowl champion in Russell Wilson. He obviously didn't play like it last year, but nobody expected yeah, what five, they got. Eight. I mean, I, I wouldn't get too crazily <laughs> five, excited ten, about... You know, some say, I mean, it's, let's not get crazy Hold here. With, on. Uh, with Were the you first saying this last Hall year? Of Famer. He is. He's a Hall of Famer. Uh, we're, that's debatable. Like, it's, no, I mean, it's not. We hand out Hall of Fame. It's just like everybody should get it. I, I should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. I mean, the, uh, yeah. Prove, prove me otherwise. <laughs> like, they're just handing those out now. Like, they'll Maybe let the minor league in. Hall so, of Fame. Uh, yeah, it's not. It's not somebody I'd put in the Hall of Fame. Again, I, my, my. You wouldn't put my, Russell Wilson I in the Hall of Fame. I always think that the players is what sort of makes the engine go. Yeah. If the players are good and you have a great quarterback, Kansas City is a prime example of that. Like, they try and piece it together with all the wide receivers yeah. because they have the the greatest quarterback to walk earth. It yeah. helps, right? He can yeah. tell everybody to go, and, and he's doing it from different arm angles. They do need to catch it when it hits their hands, better. though. Yeah, when it hits but, their hands, they got to catch it. Yeah, that would help, too, but it's... <laughs> Better when they don't, because it makes me laugh at my wife and she gets mad at me, which is always fun in my house. Uh, yeah, that is that's that's amusing. Um, I mean, now that we're talking about head coaches and and managers, how much do you think a manager can impact a major league baseball team? Like, is it a matter of like single digit wins? Can it even impact like one win a season? Like, what what, what do you think a major league baseball manager can do as far as impacting? A team's record. Yeah, me and Jeff always have this argument on our show. I always think if you have talent, a lot of talent, that's good for 88 wins. And then you're, if you're trying to get 92, 93 wins, your manager can, you know, maneuver around the lineup to get mm. a hot guy in the right spot, right? To, you know, bring him up with a bunch of dudes and runners in scoring position, right? He's thinking ahead where, you know, normally you wouldn't do that, but that guy's so hot, you have to do it, right? And that's mm. up to the manager to do that. Take out the starting pitcher when he's supposed to. Bring in the right arm against the right couple of guys, right? Because of the three-batter rule, that can help, right? Pinch run a guy when a guy can't run. Like, mm. that's little things that could help you win that, you know, instead of thinking about the 11th inning, how about think about the 8th inning? Like, yeah. it's little things that can, you know, take you to a level that would help you win 90, 91, 92, 93 games. So, 
Yeah, look, it's uh, my my definition of of what a manager means is different than other people's because I've been in the room with a bunch of managers and I just for the life of me can't remember well, you know, if a manager meant what we try and say they mean. Yeah. And why, you know, whenever it goes bad, why everybody wants to point the finger at the manager. And I'm not saying it's not sometimes the manager's fault. It's obvious when you could go to pointing the finger at him in the obvious reasons. Most of the time, I'm a point the finger at the player guy. No, I'm always going to point. Uh, no, I'm always going to point well, the finger at the player. Well, in our business, you know that's player. not the way this works, right? right. E- even in hockey here, it's you always want to point it at the coach or or the manager. No, and when, when it's not the manager's not walking on the field, he's not. He doesn't have the glove in his hand. He doesn't have the ball in his hand. He doesn't have the <laughs> bat in his hand. No, but it's it's all. I think everybody would agree that it's always mostly the players. Like ninety nine point nine percent, it's all the players, but. Yeah, you, you're you're not going to talk about like the players are a lot harder to change, right? Like it's a harder to trade away guys or change the makeup of your roster, especially in season. And and it's and it's harder to manager's fault or player's fault that a that a down two runs a mm. batter tries to go home to third mm. down two runs gets thrown out. Manager's fault or player's mm. fault? We all would love we well, all know that player's name. Okay, we all so we're talking player. We're talking about Alejandro Kirk uh, getting thrown out. At home, well, I Danny, guess I, no. Danny Jansen one time I think was down. Team was down two runs. Mm-hmm. Tried to go home to third. Yeah, I think he had a ball down a left field line or something. It trickled around and the it was misplayed and he tried to go to third mm-hmm. instead of staying at second because what the scoreboard will tell you. And then I think they lost the game. Yeah. Is that the manager's fault or the player's fault? Well, that's the player's fault. Um, yeah, but it's I, little things I, like I, that, right? It's but, it's trying to steal second. Uh, first and third with the leadoff hitter up, who yeah. is one of the better leadoff hitters oh. in the history of baseball. But manager's fault or player's fault? Well, because it I, seems to me, it sounds to me like the people I've talked to, most guys on that team have the green light. Uh, because I have the green light, because of what that scoreboard tells me, sometimes will give me the red light. I shouldn't have to look in the in the dugout, or no. I shouldn't have to look at the third base coach, or turn around to Mark Budzinski and go, "Hey, do you think I should run here?" <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's common sense, right? I'm the third inning. Mm-hmm. It's nothing to nothing. We can't score any runs. We're having a real big tough time of doing that, yeah. right? The leadoff hitters up. Mm-hmm. It's first and third with nobody out. Mm-hmm. Now, because I got thrown out, p- being picked off with a lefty on on the mound. Mm-hmm. Now it's a guy at the plate. With a runner on third, now he pops out. Now the next dude punches out. Nobody scores runs. Now you give a bad team okay. chances to hang around. I, and we all I, know what happens, right? So this is the thing, right? It's it's easy to point the finger at the manager, and occasionally we'll do it on our show. Yeah. Most of the time it'll never happen. I, <laughs> and I agree with the, the point that it is, hey, you, you play enough baseball, not just Major League Baseball, understanding the – the situation that you're in, the player doesn't need to be told, shouldn't need to be told what to do in certain situations. Where I do have a bit of a pushback, and we're, we're talking about stuff that I don't necessarily, like I, if I was going to point to John Schneider and some of the things that I've been a little bit head-scratching or, or wonder ab- about when it comes to his abilities, actually been some in-game managing stuff, and it's the not pinch-running for Alejandro Kirk. And, of course, the players can make up for that by scoring a bunch of runs and not putting this Blue Jays team in one-run games, but they have been in those situations, and part of that is because of injuries. But I would also go back to the, the beginning, because I am I agree with you that it's the player's responsibility, but I will say that at the beginning of the season, this manager 
talked about this team playing a more professional brand of baseball. So I, I guess he was telling us that he thinks it, it is partly his responsibility. Is he not? Like, is he, was he not talking about, hey, I'm part of the reason I was brought on and replace the last guys because there's going to be a different level of accountability and that we won't see as much of, of the oh, stuff that you're talking about or okay. the, or the Vladdy pimping singles oh. or, or jogging uh, home from, from third base with two outs. Oh. <laughs> there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. So if I give you the green light for four and a half months <laughs> of the season, yes, the last month of those change of the season, I should take that off because I don't think you have enough common baseball sense to understand what's <laughs> happening and understand what we can't do enough that I should take that away from you. I should be the grown-up in a room enough to know this. After four and a half months of giving it to you and mm-hmm. somewhat you've known what to do mm-hmm. and known when not to do it, mm-hmm. that now you, I think you shouldn't be allowed to make up your own mind mm-hmm. and you're going to make me, the organization, and yourself look like you've never played baseball before. <laughs> or I've never managed before, or we've never ran an organization before. Mm. This is what I think. Everybody's in that together, mm-hmm. right? And, again, I like to think that the last couple of years that I spent in the big leagues was because I was a smart baseball player. Yeah. Not because I was a great baseball player, because I don't think I ever was that. But I was a very good baseball mind, and yeah. I knew... If I had any chance of staying there and making more money than I would make in AAA, I had to not try and steal a base <laughs> in the third inning, first and third against a really bad team with a lefty on the mound. Yeah. Like it's little things. It's like Kevin Kiermaier did it one time too, which oh. was just early in games. Kevin, it's like the things that people it's, do. It's, it's crazy because like, I think of Kevin Kiermaier as a great example, like him. And I've even seen it from Matt Chapman. So like you would stop you, giving Kevin the no, green light no. because this time of the year, he's trying to I, do too much. I'm just, I'm confused as to why guys who are previously smart, baseball players right like i would think if kevin kiermaier on the short list like before he became a blue jay of guys who are winners right like win, play winning baseball i would think kevin kiermaier on a, on a short list of guys who play winning baseball doesn't mean they're the best baseball players in the world um, what's a winner i i think guys that do that are, are smart baseball players do the right things know the situations apply those those, those experiences. So you're saying Kevin Kiermaier no, never did that with the Tampa I, Bay Rays? I'm saying he did it the most. And <laughs> I'm saying what happened when he came here that, and I, I wouldn't say that by and large, he's not been that player, but there's been more moments than I ever remember in his time with the Tampa Bay Rays being stupid. Like, I don't know. There, for some reason, guys who have a previous track record, pretty good track record of being smart baseball players, when they put on this Blue Jays uniform, it, it flies out the window. Yeah, it is amazing what expectations will do to you, right? Is that it? It's, it's expectations? Well, I think it's you're not living up to it. Mm-hmm. And now you think you have to push it to try and go outside the box instead of just staying within yourself and doing the exact same things and not beating yourself. Like, I think you have 27 outs. Caleb, Joseph th- talks about that all the time. You got 27 outs. Mm-hmm. You have to use them. And everybody wh- always says, well, wh- why did they let uh, bad teams hang around? Because they do dumb things. I mean, let's say it like it is. They yes. do things that will just, <laughs> it makes you scratch your head. That's what I'm talking like about. Like first and third with nobody out, trying to steal second with the leadoff hitter up that your manager <laughs> moved from the cleanup spot because it's better for the team <laughs> yeah. to put him back in the leadoff spot. Yes. Why you're wanting traffic. So now all of a sudden, instead of you, 
giving him a chance to hit a three-run homer because you're trying too hard, <laughs> you're overthinking it, you're not doing what the scoreboard will tell you to do that we think you should be doing all the time, and I shouldn't tell a everyday big leaguer <laughs> to not do it because I think he's smart enough to always do it. That's that's sort of the road where they're at, right? Is yeah. Now does the manager step in and and tick everybody off <laughs> because for four and a half months he just basically said do the right thing because I think you're smart enough to do it on your own. Yeah. But now I've seen you not. <laughs> okay, so that's where, where they're at. I think it's I like, I agree. I'd be infuriated. You're as well. everywhere. Like no, a hundred percent. Right. I I love talking about plate approach with you. I mean, where does that fall in the the realm of smart baseball? Because this has been a, a baseball team, despite the fact they've had some big run totals against these bad teams Well, you have recently. to name a person. Like, be very okay. It's very we're talking about Vlad, for, and we're talking uh, about George Springer. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> like, okay, I'm always all, talking. We always talk about I, Vlad. I, and we did have John on, and we did interview him, and I did ask, because we take a lot of phone calls. Mm-hmm. There's some hatred in there about Vladdy. About why, you know, why isn't he sitting him? Why didn't he move him down in the order? Uh, you know, why is he uh, showing up the team by not running out balls? I asked John that. John had a really good answer. So if you want to know why, tune in and he will give you the answer Ooh. on things that have taken place Ooh. and what he thinks about Ooh. Vladdy. Ooh, that's a good tease. Okay. I don't want to, so I don't want to spoil that part of it. But I started off the show. This is where I, I, I want to get your opinion because this was, you know, there's a, a lot of Blue Jays fans were frustrated with not just the approach from some of the most important players yeah, on the team. I think the players the are too with yeah, themselves. But it's like some early count like outs. It's it's some hey, when Vladimir Guerrero Jr. puts the first ball of the plate appearance in play, he's got an OPS over a thousand. Like he's doing super well, but he's only got three home runs. So it's it's it, but it is hard to fault a guy. Or swinging at the first pitch. So you're pitch. one of those guys that like the ball and play and the exit velocity. No, no. Instead of the results. <laughs> I'm asking you. The, I'm asking well, I'm you. I'm asking you. You're that. Because you brought no, that I like up the results. The OPS. You love that. The OPS <laughs> no. and, the, and the, you know, the exit. Well, well we're no, crazy about that no, 115 no, mile an hour no. ground ball no. out to the third baseman. This is. Look at that. No. So this is my point. Is that he's, he's, he's got a bunch of singles when he puts the first pitch of the plate appearance in play. Okay, I'll stop you there before you go on. So if I'm a pitcher and I just know the stat that you said mm-hmm. and I know he's got a bunch of singles, why wouldn't I nibble at him? Don't just don't throw it down the middle and see if he'll exactly. be very aggressive, yeah. hit a ball hard that's a 17 hopper single to the left fielder or to the center fielder well, isn't or that what's right, happening? whatever it is. Yeah. Is that not what's happening? Sort of. Yeah. I mean it also, I mean and the numbers would suggest this that like Fastballs are are not being punished. That that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. in his best seasons going back, even last year wasn't his best season. But that's a pretty good season. And thirty and ninety is a good yeah. season. And, and yeah, I, I I don't know. Oh, you're saying it's not a good season? No, no. There's a, there's a, a individual that I work with every day <laughs> who says thirty and ninety is not okay. I would say it's a good season, and especially compared to what we're looking at the final. Uh, line score for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. in 2023, you would certainly take that over what we've seen this season. But, I mean, what in that season, and especially in 2021, he just destroyed fastballs. What have I liked most, I think, out of Davis Schneider's approach is that 
Well, one, he's we had Davis Snyder on today, and he will tell you why he does. You guys got everybody. Like today, we have you have a pretty good show. The two Snyders, so two men, (laughs) not at the same time though. No, No. one's at six and one's at six thirty, I believe. Okay, well, I will be sure to to be tuning in from home because I'll be home by that time. Nice. Um, But one of my my favorite parts of watching a Davis Snyder at bat, and it doesn't always end up in success, but boy, more often than not, feels to, is that. He's not making. He's not getting himself out, right? That he really does seem to force a pitcher into a situation where he's got to throw a fastball. It's not just like, hey, I'm sitting on a single pitch, three-one count, getting a fastball, and it's probably going to be up in the zone because that's my weakness. But if I'm waiting for it, I'm early on it, and I'm hitting it hard, either off the wall or over the wall in left field. Like, how many times have we seen Vlad in a three-one count punish a fastball? Like, I can't think of one this season. Yeah, I think again. I know it's, it's happened, it's but you very, know what I mean. It's very, it's very hard to compare the two, right? The expectations. Did you know Davis Snyder two months ago? Like I'd heard of him. <laughs> yeah, I'd heard of okay? him. Okay, but it was it wasn't like well, I can't wait to get Davis up. <laughs> no, of course like, not. The expectations with the two are totally different. So it's trying to you know compare apples and oranges here for sure. So I've been told right. The sample size for Davis has not is not big enough for the league to know numerous ways to get him out. It's one way about the elevated fastball, right? So oh, he's correct to that. Else? Now I'm sure there will be, right? I mean, he's hitting well over 400 on the breaking ball. He's going to continue to do that his entire baseball career, probably oh, no. not. So there, you know, it, it is nice to see this now. Right, it's nice to see him. You have a weakness, you go in, you try and correct it. And I did ask him that. He will give us the answer mm-hmm. later nice about tease. how he does that. He says Doing it's a very great simple. job promoting the show. So we're gonna Good job. we're gonna see how simple that is. I wouldn't think just attacking an elevated fastball is that simple. He made it sound like it was. Maybe that's why he's having success. <laughs> he and makes he will it all seem so simple. He he does. There is a lot of frustration around Vladdy, and it's you know I I guess. It's warranted that you are allowed to be as frustrated as you are because of the double plays and, you know, sometimes the effort level doesn't look like it's there and, you know, just the body of work that we expected to see Mm -hmm. this time of the year. We expected if Bo left for a while because of injury, wouldn't be a big deal. He's got Vladdy, right? Mm -hmm. Vladdy will fill in the blanks times two. And it's just... You know, for whatever reason, you know, some at bats, it's mechanical. Some at bats, it's selection of what he's swinging at. Some at bats is it's mental, right? He'll get out his first at bat, his second at bat, he's whipped, right? Mm-hmm. So it's accumulation of a bunch of things Isn't trying it? to, it's expectations one. Mm-hmm. But like, there's a bunch of things going into, you know, I try harder, you try harder in baseball, it just doesn't work out that way. People don't want to hear that, right? Everybody talks about Vladdy being elite and elite offensive players should be able to separate failure. Mm-hmm. quicker than non-elite offensive players and come back and be the elite guy that we all expected and we all wanted to see. I, I just, I think this is just me. Sometimes you fall down the mountain, you fall down the mountain, and right now he's having one of those seasons where he's falling down the mountain, and sometimes occasionally you're going to have one of those. Yeah, I, I took you longer than I was going to because, you know, you got a whole two-hour show, although a bunch of it is recorded, it sounds like. So, man. <laughs> good stuff. Yeah, it? it's good stuff. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I can't wait to hear that. But, no, I would just say last thing for me on this was that I think the thing, and you tell me, the thing easiest for the player to control would be approach. 
right? And 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 maybe the thing hardest to change once you get into the major leagues is like strike recogni- uh, strike zone recognition and, and approach. But yeah, the, the mechanics, yeah, I get that. I, the human body, like it's hard to keep doing the same thing. I think thing. I agree with you, but they've talked about it so much. Mm. I would think as a player, sooner than later, you're going to get tired of hearing it, right? Mm. And it's just, how do you separate hearing it and then going out and not listening to it between your ears all mm. the time and actually being able to perform. That, for me, is where they're at. They mm. talk about it all the time. If they talk about it all the time to us, they're talking about it to their players. The mm-hmm. players are talking about it with each other. Like, it's just, it's turned into a a bad habit. Mm-hmm. And I just think sometimes bad habits are hard to get rid of. And this is why I say... I think what they are going to give you offensively is just basically what you're going to get, right? It's not it's not going to be special. It's not going to be awful. It'll be somewhere mm-hmm. in the middle. Hopefully somebody runs into a three-run homer. Yeah. They win five to three. <laughs> well, hopefully they get on a they run the playoffs. here. Hopefully they get an offensive run here, and, and hopefully they, they get on a, a winning streak. What would tell you that streak? they could do that? that that's mean, the thing, right, is – I mean, the American League East, they're not good at it. They're not good at it probably because they're real good at attacking weaknesses mm-hmm. because they see them all the time. Mm-hmm. They see them more than other teams see them. Yeah. So what would tell us mm-hmm. that this team's going to go on one of those dynamic offensive runs where <laughs> it's 10 to 2 and everybody can be happy watching their TV sets? <laughs> all right. And they can't score runs at home. They got 16 games no, left at home. I... They're like 25th in baseball scoring Kevin, runs at home. That's, like we don't have enough time to do this. At home. Kevin, so we what would tell you this? I, this is what the, I said. The home Pitch stuff good, is weird. Lean on your bullpen. Yeah. And don't be yourself. Baseball IQ. If you can do that, you're a playoff team. If you don't do it, <laughs> we'll be having a different conversation <laughs> about the last two days of the season. That will suck because my son's going well, to the second last game of the season for his birthday. I'm taking him down to I batting practice. They, I, I think they're a playoff team. Their yeah. pitching's good enough. Hope I think so. they're smart enough. It's going to ruin his birthday. He's going to turn in eight he'll, he'll have for a good Saturday. Time. And I'm sure against he does no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure as long as you buy him nice gifts and, yeah. you know. Oh, no chance of that. No? <laughs> no, I'll get him something nice. Yeah? All right. Some socks. Well, you're taking him to like... a baseball game, which yeah. is all that matters. I, I would think so. Anyways, thanks for sticking around for way longer than I was going to force you Absolutely. to. But, but now I don't feel so no. bad because I was reminded that, yeah, I you got some to, tape segments. I just will let you know, nobody forces me other than my wife to do anything. <laughs> oh, there you go. Okay. All right. Well, I should be, I should feel uh, very proud then that you, that you stuck around. Thanks, Kevin. Absolutely. All right, there's Kevin Barker getting set for uh, Blair and Barker. Some incredible interviews. The Schneiders, both of them. The manager, John, and then the best player on the team, Davis, who's the, the DH today in another must-win game against a team that stinks, the Kansas City Royals. You say Kikuchi going through it a little bit in recent uh, outings, but we'll see if he can turn it around against a very bad Kansas City Royals team. Half game lead Blue Jays have over the Rangers in the American League wildcard standings, uh, and the Rangers have the A's at home this weekend, so it would very much behoove the Blue Jays to uh, sweep away a team that they're capable of sweeping away. All right. Have a great weekend, everybody. I will be back on Monday. Blair and Barker is next. I'm Ben Ennis. This has been the Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590 The Fan.